Bibles, um, open up back up to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue tonight in the sermon series we started here a few weeks ago. I'll read that here in just a few moments. So um, I read this story this week about this couple who had been married for 60 years. It's a long time. Now, when they, um, as they, throughout the course of this marriage, um, they had an amazing marriage. Um, they, 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 they prided themselves on keeping no secrets. They, they knew everything about one another that there, that there was to know, except for one little shoebox that was up in the corner of their closet. You see, when they first got married, um, the uh, wife told her husband, this shoebox up here is the only thing that you can't know about. You can, you can know about any other secret my entire life except for this shoebox. I'm going to ask you and trust. Don't look in it and don't ask anything about it if you do. And so the husband agreed. And 60 years goes by and now this woman is um, on her deathbed. And the husband asked her, well, do you think maybe that we should check what's in the side of that box since the doctor is saying that you're probably not going to make it? She says, yeah, I think that... Now is about the time that, uh, that I should probably share with you what this is all about. And anyways, he went and got it and brought it to, the, to her bedside, and, and he opened it up, and he, and he found two crocheted dolls and a wad of cash that in the sum of $95,000. And uh, he said, well, what in the world is, is this all about? She said, well, when we got married, my grandmother told me this. If ever you have a conversation with your husband that cannot be reconciled, instead of fighting and arguing, be quiet and crochet a doll. And so she did. And, and at this, the husband was just taken back. And he's like, in 60 years, we've only had two arguments that was able to not, I mean, he, he looked at her and it says his love for her even grew deeper. And he was just amazed at this. And, but then he asked, well, What's all the money for? Well, if you must ask, I sold crocheted dolls for $5 a piece throughout the course of our marriage. <laughs> yeah. You know, it has been well said that the hardest job that there probably is to do in this world is marriage. You know, as one person said, it's, it's always amazing how both the greatest joys and the greatest frustrations can come from one relationship. Is that true? Um, don't say yes, men. I've often said that the Bible covers pretty much everything we need to know about life and godliness. And I say that because the Bible tells us that everything for life and godly living is contained within the pages of this book that we call the Bible. And that certainly includes a topic we're talking about today, which is marriage and divorce and, and kind of everything that encompasses with that. Now, a number of weeks ago, we started this series um, on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember, the reason it's called this is this is a, probably the most famous sermon that Jesus ever gave. And it was kind of up in northern Israel on a mountainside with the sea of Galilee to his back, and, and he taught just multitudes and multitudes of people. And, just, and just to give you a quick refresher of where we've been, we went through Palm Sunday and Easter. We haven't been in this series for a couple weeks now. Um, if you remember, he started off by talking about 
these attitudes and attributes that should be in every believer's life. And, and we know them really as the Beatitudes. And, and, and we talked about how if, if we can have these attitudes and attributes present in our life and live by them, what it'll do, is it'll open up amazing doors for us to be the light to this world um, that God has called us to be. And from there, he began to deal with um, what we really talk about today as the law of God, which is essentially uh, a list of laws of do's and don'ts for the nation of Israel that was given to them through Moses that really guided them as a nation. It was um, something that God gave them, not just for the do's and the don'ts, but that was part of it, but really for, for them to govern themselves, for, for them to know what was right and what was wrong, to see what was sin and what was not, to see how God wanted them to live, and to really lead them to this understanding that, boy, even in our, in our best efforts, we can't do it, and we really need somebody to save us. That's what it was kind of designed to do for them. And then the last time we were together um, in this series, we, we kind of talking, we, we started talking about um, these two specific commands that he was um, dealing with, which were the, the two commands of adultery and murder. And, and if you can remember from when we talked about that a few weeks ago, Jesus was, was teaching them that what they were taught was not quite what was meant by the command that Jesus gave. And so pretty much what was happening at this time were you have these religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, um, these priests, that were, when they would teach people, when they would, especially like, let's say like the Ten Commandments, what they would do is they would say that um, murder is wrong, but everything below that is probably acceptable. That, that adultery itself is wrong, but everything below that is kind of acceptable. So they really diminished the law in a lot of ways, and Jesus wanted to set it straight with them to help them understand that uh, that's not quite what God had in mind when he said those things. And he began to help them understand that um, sin begins here. S- sin really is a, is a hard issue. It's not, it doesn't, it's not just determined by the outward action that takes place. It's something that starts very in, in the heart and soul of our lives. And, and really, the heart problem was the issue, and he wanted them to understand that, that God sees um, the, the heart issues that we have. He sees the sin that we have, and, and we're going to be judged based on the sin we have, not just the outward appearance. But the big kind of focus that he had in that time, during this, this little thing here was this idea that it can't justify us. You know, our good deeds, no matter how good they are, and if you remember these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, they were, they were thinking in their minds that if, as long as they obeyed the letter of the law, meaning if I didn't murder, if I didn't commit adultery, if I didn't go steal something off a shelf, whatever, they, these, these kind of big letter sins, as long as they didn't do that, they would be justified before God, meaning in, in their own good works, they could stand before God and be accepted, and, and Jesus is like, look, you, you can't. It's impossible because sin starts here. It's not, it's not about just the outward actions. It's about the, the problem that we have from the very depth of our soul, which is we're sinners. And so he was kind of dealing with that. Now, today he makes this transition from talking about um, two of the Ten Commandments to talking about another issue that was very much um, being taught from a misguided view in their day as well, which was this issue of marriage and divorce. So let's go ahead and read our text for today in uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 31. We're going to read just two verses tonight, verse 31 and 32. And it says this, you have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. 
But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Let's go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing upon our time. Heavenly Father, thank you so much just for um, the opportunity we have here to be in this place. Uh, the, the fact that we have this book that we, ha- we have in our hands, that your holy word that gives us instruction and guidance to help us live a life, God, that pleases you. And, and Father, tonight... Uh, we need you in this place. Uh, God, there, there is no, um, no power in the voice of a man. God, there, there is no, nothing that I can say that can convince anybody. There is nothing that I can say tonight that can change any heart. God, that's your job, not mine. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take over. Um, take over my mind, take over my mouth, and just use me as a tool to speak to your people tonight. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would remove any distractions or hindrances or, or anything in this place that would, that, would, that would try to stop what you want to do here. And I pray, God, that you would reign in this service and reign in this building and reign in our hearts, God, that hearts and lives can be touched, lives can be changed. And just I pray that you be glorified in every aspect of it. We love you. We thank you. Bless this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So when it comes to this issue of marriage and divorce, especially in our culture today, I am well aware that this is a um, sensitive subject. However, just because something is a sensitive subject does not mean that we shouldn't cover it, right? I mean, if, if God um, thought it was important to put in the Bible, it's something that's important for us to cover and for us to have an understanding of the way God views these specific things. And just because something is uncomfortable or culturally divisive does not mean that we should avoid it. Um, but in saying that, we do come to these um, topics like this with sensitivity and, and understanding as well. Now, as we think about this subject of marriage and divorce, one might be tempted to believe that this, was, this is really more of a modern problem. Um, and, and it is. Um, There's no doubt a problem and an issue in our culture today. But interestingly enough, this was also a huge problem in the day that Jesus was speaking to these people. Um, from, from the historians that I've read this week, they say that, um, that the divorce was actually a bit of an epidemic in first century Israel at this time. And so when Jesus was talking to these people, he wanted to give them... God's perception on this specific issue of marriage and divorce. And just in these two verses, he briefly talks about this. And the first thing he says there is in verse 31, he says, you have heard the law that says, right? And so, remember, we, we talked about this the last time we were together, that when he says this, he was talking about what they, had, what they were being taught from the religious leaders of the day. Right, so what they're being taught, he's saying, here's what you're being taught, that a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. So essentially, if, if a man decided that he doesn't want his wife anymore, then many of them were being taught that he could write her a certificate of divorce and be done with her and wipe his hands of it and everything was good to go. Now, much like it is today, in Jesus' time, there was definitely not a shortage of opinions on these, this view of marriage and divorce. And um, from what I've read this week, it's kind of interesting, there were really two schools of thought on this issue in, in Israel at this particular time. When I say two schools of thought, literally I mean two schools. Um, they were led by these two different men that were teaching theological views. One of them that were teaching was this issue of marriage and divorce. One of them was this, it's called the school of Shammai, with Shammai being the leader of that school. And, and this was a pretty conservative school, um, they say. And then pretty much what they said was a marriage that, that began needs to be a marriage that stays together only. Um, the only exception would be is if the wife would commit some 
type of adultery or sexual sin, and then the, the husband would be um, excused in, in removing her from that marriage, where the school of Hillel um, basically taught that it was okay for a man to divorce his wife for pretty much any reason that he so chose. Like, quite literally, if she was a bad cook, he could get rid of her. If she burnt his meal, he could get rid of her. If she was hard to get along with, she could get, or he could get rid of her. Um, one guy listened to this week said, if she didn't get along with her mother-in-law, he could get rid of her. How about this one? If they found somebody more attractive than their wife, they were justified in getting rid of her. This, this, in their mind, just went back to the clean and unclean laws. If they found somebody more beautiful than the spouse that they were with, in their mind, they considered that she was cleaner in God's eyes than the one they had. Therefore, they were justified in getting rid of this one so they could have really the one that they wanted. So pretty much in the school of Halal, which was very, very liberal, obviously, um, they pretty much said you could divorce your wife for pretty much any reason that you want, right? Interestingly enough, it was only the man that could do this. You know, if, if the woman's husband got old, fat, and bald, guess what? She was stuck with him no matter what. It was only the husband that had this privilege of getting rid of the wife, which obviously there's some issues with that from its very uh, outset, right? Um, now, the question is, where did they get this anyways? Was this actually even a law that they could just divorce their wife for just any random reason? Well, they got this actually from the writings of Moses, clear back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24. And I just want to read to you what verses 1 through 4 says. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4 says this. Suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes a, the husband writes a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her um, from his house. And when she leaves his house, she's free to marry another man. But if, she, but if the second husband also turns against her, writes a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away. Or if he dies, the first husband may not marry her again, for she has been defiled. That would be detestable to the Lord, and you must not bring guilt upon the land the Lord your God has given you as a special possession. So that, this is where they got their entire theology about divorce, was from that passage. What is the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is nowhere in that passage of Scripture does Moses command that divorce should happen. There, there was no law that said if, if, a, if a guy decided he didn't like his wife no more, he could just get rid of her. Nowhere in that passage of Scripture really does he even condone divorce. All this was was Moses using basically a hypothetical situation to say that if a man chooses to divorce his wife and she remarries, she can never go back to her first husband because their covenant that they had had been broken. She'd been in a covenant with another that was broken and there was no way that she could, at that point could come back to him because in God's eyes that it was unacceptable and should not be done. That was the teaching of Deuteronomy chapter 24. A hypothetical situation of a man that decided to do this. It was never Moses condoning, certainly never Moses commanding that this should be done in a marriage. In saying that, it was allowed by Moses, but as we'll see, this was never God's perfect plan. But the teachers of religious law, basically of Jesus' day, said otherwise. Some that you could divorce for any reason, some that you could divorce um, and if only for the reason specifically of adultery, which is interesting because of the actual law. 
See, the actual law of Moses, which these teachers that were teaching this would have known, the actual law says if an act of adultery is committed, and there were witnesses to this, two or three witnesses to this, it wasn't a divorce that would happen. That woman and the other offender would be taken outside of town and stoned to death. That was the law. It was capital punishment, essentially, for committing adultery in a marriage, right? And so, but they were teaching that people could divorce their spouses. But look at verse 32. So that's what they said, but I say, Jesus says that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, literally that word unfaithful means a physical act of sinful sexual relations. It's not just some thought or some random thing that it's physical sex with somebody outside of your marriage, um, right, from her husband, right? Anyways, he says, if, if she's been unfaithful and caused her to come, and, and unless she has been unfaithful, he actually caused her to commit adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman also committed adultery. So anyway, what Jesus is saying is this, he's like, look, if you just divorce your wife because you just don't want her anymore, here's the problem with that. Number one, you're in sin because you did it. Number two, any other relationship that she has, because she's still in a covenant with you in God's eyes, she's going to be in sin, and the guy she's with is also going to be in sin because of this. And um, as we know, there's a big problem with that, because if you cause somebody to sin yourself, that means you're sinning. And so Jesus is pretty much saying, you always have this completely, completely wrong. Now, as I said, according to the, the, the actual laws of Moses, not only would a, not, this, this whole divorce idea here that, that they were asking about, that Jesus was speaking on, what's interesting about this, like I said, is Jesus, I don't believe he was dealing with the, so much with the divorce factor that they were asking, that they were, that they were thinking about. And I, I think we'll see this in a minute, because in, in the case that, Specifically, a, a woman, right? Um, if, if, if you, you have this case, trying to get my bearings and my thoughts here, but you have th- this case where you have a husband and you have a wife, and the guy gets sick of her and sends her off. We already said that that's wrong, right? But what if she committed adultery? If she actually committed adultery, what Jesus was not saying here was that she was just free for, to go to get divorced and to go live her life with her new beau. Th- that's not what Jesus was saying. When, when he said here in, in verse 32, I just want to make this clear when he says in verse 32, he says, but I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And so what he was not doing was giving permission, I do not believe, for the man to divorce his wife so she could go live out her life in freedom with her new friend. I really do not believe that that's what Jesus was saying here. I think I will, I'll talk about that here, why I believe that here in a little bit. So the, but the question in their minds really was not that. It was instead this false teaching that Jesus was dealing with that a man could divorce 
for any reason at all. And to that, he said, not only the husband would be in the wrong by doing that, but he would actually be causing his wife and the other man to sin as well. So essentially, Jesus says, no, this is not okay, and God has certainly not sanctioned that as being okay. A person who causes another to sin is also in sin. And so from their very teaching point, no matter if it was the school of Shammai or the school of Hillel, they both had a warped view of reality when it came to how God actually saw this issue issue of marriage and divorce. Now, that's basically the teaching of these two verses, but now let's go a little bit deeper here on this subject to try to see how it kind of relates to us on a personal level today. Now, one of the, one of the troubles um, really with, with specific passages like this, um, especially you think about Old Testament passages and even when Jesus was speaking to these people, there's a temptation in the modern church to say that this has nothing to do with us. That's a temptation in the modern, as we see this all around us, that, that what Jesus was speaking to Jews 2,000 years ago in a different place at a different time, and so we, we can't really look at this and have a, a direct relation to what we're dealing with today, but we don't look at it like that. Because, in my view, the Bible is authoritative no matter what year it is. The Bible is authoritative no matter if we live in Israel or if we live in China or if we live in the United States. Um, the Bible is still very much authoritative in our lives. The question is, is, we have to ask, when we have a text like this, how does this apply to us today? Not does it apply to us today, but really how does this apply to us today? And, and I think we'll very much see that it absolutely does. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a little deeper dive into these, just, just this thought about marriage and divorce and take some other passages of Scripture that talk about this from a little deeper sense. And I think by the end of it, what we'll understand is exactly what Jesus meant here and exactly what God's view on marriage and divorce are as well. The first thing I want to consider just for a moment as we think about this idea, this this question they have about divorce and marriage, what is God's perception of divorce? When you think about a a couple that is married and them coming apart and ending in divorce, how does God really view that? Regardless of our opinions or our culture, what does God really think about that subject? And I believe it is answered maybe the clearest in Malachi chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Listen to what this says. It says, Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and in spirit you are his. And what does he want? He wants godly children from your union. So so it says, Guard your heart, remain loyal to the wife of your youth. In verse 16 he says, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart and do not be unfaithful to your wife. That's pretty clear, isn't it? When God says, I hate this, that's a pretty strong statement from the Lord. And so from the very outset of this view of what God sees when he sees two people breaking up, it is not his will. It is not his desire. It is not his plan. It is not his best. He hates divorce. The question is, is why is this such a big deal to God? Why does God care about whether I stay married to my wife or not and go find somebody else? Why why does God care about this really is the question that we should ask. Now, from this passage of Malachi, there's a couple practical things, right? 
One, godly, um, God wants godly children to come from a marriage. I mean, it's a pretty practical reason, right? Now, question, how does divorce affect children? Unfortunately, children are, are far, far too often the innocent victims that are negatively affected when it comes to divorce. And statistically, children that have to go through that or endure that, it's not something that generally, speaks, generally speaking draws them to God. It generally speaking does the opposite, right? And so just from one practical aspect, if we want godly children... They need to be raised in a godly home with a mother and a father who are godly parents. Why is this so important? Is the world not filling up with plenty of people that aren't godly? Just think about this from a practical level, right? We have, we have a world that is having tons and tons of people having children every single year. And the vast majority of them, 80 to 90% of them, are godless people. And do you think it's important that Christians have children to help populate the earth as well and to make godly children so there's a godly um, witness on this earth still so the world just doesn't get overcome by godlessness? Absolutely. From a very practical reason, um, if if we want to see God's kingdom grow, you know, as the old saying goes, uh, every mother have another, right? Good way to grow your church as well. Another practical reason he says here, in that text, is God says that for a man to divorce his wife was to overwhelm her with cruelty. Especially during this time, a woman completely depended upon her husband for everything. And for, for him to basically say, I no longer want you, leave, she had nowhere else to go. She, she really had two options. One was starve or, or prostitute herself. Or go find another husband, and if she did that, she'd be in an adulterous relationship. And so God says to just divorce her for no reason at all is, is of the greatest cruelty to her, and God says he hates that. But here's the, the big issue. Look what he says there in, in verse 15 of Malachi chapter 2. He says, did the Lord make you one with your wife, one in body and spirit? And he, sa- and he says that you are his. The Lord has made us one with our wife. How? In body and in spirit. Listen to what Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 19 on this. Matthew chapter 19 verses 3 through 6 says this. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap Jesus in his words with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for any reason? In verse 4 it says, haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning God made them male and female which just as a side note, with everything going on today, that's pretty clear. He God made men and he made women, boys and girls. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. Again, pretty clear, a man leaves his parents and joined to his female wife. Again, important. And the two are united together as one. And he says, since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. See, when, when a man and a woman come together in marriage, there is far more that happen, happens at that ceremony than just two people signing a contract. There is a supernatural joining of two people by the power of God. 
to become one in God's eyes. Just a cool picture of this is Adam and Eve. Consider Adam and Eve for just a moment. Adam was created by God's hand. He formed him with the dirt. He, you know, and, and, and he shapes him. He molds him, breathes life of him in him. And, and the first man is there. But then how does Eve come along? He puts him to sleep and takes a piece from his side, probably one of his ribs, takes him and he, and he forms Eve from there. And then what happens? God gives Eve to Adam as his wife in this first marriage ceremony, and he says the two now have become one again. So he takes a piece out of them, so now they're two flesh, but they come back together, they become one. Once again, this is this beautiful picture about how a man and a woman together come one. Uh, uh, so and if you think about why divorce is such a big deal, a divorce essentially tears apart what God has supernaturally brought together, which is a big deal. Just as a side note, look what he says there again in verse 15. He says, in body and spirit, we are his, not our own. A big thing to remember is we belong to God, and the goal of any marriage should first and foremost to do what should be to do what makes God happy. Secondly, to be what makes our spouse happy, and guess who's last? Us. And I can tell you couples would operate that way. There would be a lot less marital issues than there are in our world. Now, the question is, why does God care so much again? What, what's the big deal? We, we saw that it's a big deal. He makes them one. The two become one. And, and to tear that apart is something that's unnatural. That is something that, that God doesn't want. So we've talked about God's perception of divorce. Now, let's, let's look at God's picture of marriage. Let's look, look at marriage according to the Lord. Again, one thing to understand about marriage from God's point of view is that this covenant and spiritual union that takes place represents something far, far bigger than the average person realizes. For starters, in the Old Testament, there's this picture. You have the nation of Israel being God's people, and you have God in heaven. And there's this picture of God in heaven being their husband, the nation of Israel being the wife, the bride. And we get this from um, Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 5 that says this, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. When Israel became a nation, God makes this covenant with them with, to, for them to be his people, him to be their God, and this relationship is pictured as God being their husband, the nation of Israel being his bride. Now, was Israel always faithful to God? No. He was. They, they weren't, were they? Did God divorce them? Did God kick them out because they were unfaithful to him? Absolutely not. The book of Revelation proves it. They're, they're still his people to this day. And he's still going to bring them back to himself in the end. Now, in the New Testament, we have another picture. This picture of, of Jesus and the church. Jesus being the husband, the church being the bride. So we're talking about the the brick and mortar, the cement we have, the four walls. No, who's the church? Christians. If you're a person that knows Christ as your Savior, you are part of the church, and you, by your very nature, are considered to be the bride of Jesus Christ himself. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Listen to what this says. A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. In verse 32, it says, this is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So the very marriage union that I have with my 
wife, the fill you have with Mary. This is a, a earthly picture of a spiritual truth of our relationship with Christ. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Jesus is married to us as the church. Now, when we get saved, Jesus brings us into this marriage covenant with himself, and the thing we should ask ourselves is, is what does this look like in the Bible? What, what is this marriage that we have with the Lord? For starters, just consider this. Are we innocent? Are, 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 when we come to faith in Christ, are we like this chaste virgin that is just spotless and perfect? Oh, goodness, no. Which one of you were not a sinner before you came to faith in Jesus? Not me, and I can guarantee not you, because the Bible says so, right? Think about this. When, when we got saved, when Jesus took us to himself to be his bride, he took us understanding that we have flaws, understanding that we have quirks, understanding that we have all kinds of issues in our life. He, he took us in understanding that before we ever came to faith in him, and he took us anyways in spite of it all. And in our relationship with him, what's he do? He just patiently walks with us, patiently helps us become the people that he knows we have the potential to be. What an amazing picture that is. What else does the Bible say about our relationship with Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17 says we're joined with him in spirit. It says he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. Just like a man and a wife, we become with Christ. Ephesians 2.13 says we become his possession, that we belong to him. But we're not just some possession for him to abuse, right? No, we're, we're, we're a possession for, that he adores. He treasures us as his bride. What's the proof of that? The proof is the way he takes care of us because he shows that love. He shows that he treasures us so many uh, because of all the ways that he does. Think of his patience with us. How patient is God with us? We know ourselves better than anybody knows us. We know he's incredibly patient. He is incredibly kind. He provides for our needs. He comforts us. He spends time with us. He helps us become the people he knows that we can be. As our husband, he sets the perfect example of what a husband is supposed to be. One who stands by his wife's side no matter what. No matter who she is or what she's done, what we are or what we've done, he sticks by us. And here's the amazing thing. No matter how we've messed up, will Christ ever divorce us? The answer to that is no. For the person who has placed their faith in Christ and got saved, you are his from now until eternity. And it's never going to change. No matter how bad we failed. See, the, the, the picture that we get of, of Jesus when it comes to him being our husband, us being our bride, is an incredible one in Scripture. John chapter 6 and verse 37 says, Jesus says this, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out, no matter what. No matter what we do, Jesus will never say, You've gone too far, you're gone. I don't want you no more. The Bible says that won't happen. Wow. I was telling some of the guys here earlier today, just this, this picture of marriage that we get, right? 
And I was just blown away by this thought today as I was considering the, the picture between Christ and us as a church and, and a man and a wife, right? Have you ever considered this? We, we know the story of the gospel. Jesus came, sinless life, goes to the cross, dies, buried three days later, he rises again, right? And from that point, from because of what he's done, salvation is offered to all people. You know, the, the call of salvation goes out to all. If I, if I, he said, if I be lifted up, I'm drawing all men unto myself. For God so loved the world that he, he gave his son for the whole purpose of people being saved. Have you ever considered what Jesus did to be his marriage proposal to us? He rose again, and now he's saying to the entire world, I'm extending my hand to you. Will you be my bride? How cool is that? He said, I want you to be part of my life. I, I, want, I, I want to love you. I want to care for you. I want you to be by my side forever. That's amazing. And I told him, I said, let's go one more step. This is even, just, just blew me away today as I was thinking about this picture of, of Christ and the church and, and, and the, this relationship between uh, my, me and my wife, right? And, and I was thinking to myself, how is, I, I, I don't mean to get graphic, but, but think about this. How is a marriage consummated? How, how, how the two become one physically? A man comes into his wife, right? When a person gets saved, check this out. When a person gets saved, I, I take Jesus by the hand. And I say, I, I want to be yours. The Bible says the spirit of the living God dwells into it. It comes into us, which seals the relationship. It consummates the marriage between us and Christ. We take his hand in marriage and his spirit comes into us and dwells with us and we become one flesh with Jesus just as I am with my wife. That is cool to think about that. And so this is why marriage and divorce is such a big deal to God because of what it represents. It represents something way beyond ourselves. It represents the most holy of unions that there ever has ever been between us and the Lord. Now, if this is true, then can you see how divorce completely distorts the picture of marriage that God intended it to be? So here's a question. If marriage is a God-designed picture of this relationship, His with us, then why in the world is marriage so hard? Because it is, isn't it? Like, if this was God's design from the beginning, for marriage to be a picture of the spiritual union that we have with Christ, why in the world is being married so difficult? One huge reason is Satan. This is a huge reason why marriage is so difficult. Because he wants everything that God does not want. He, he, he wants the exact opposite of what God wants. So it's, think about this. If a marriage is a picture of the relationship between God and his people, then Satan would like nothing more than to destroy that picture. If God's goal in a marriage is for a couple to produce godly offspring that will lead to more generations of godly offspring, guess what Satan wants? His goal is to absolutely do the opposite. God's goal is for generations of God's children to be raised. Satan wants to destroy them. If God's goal is for a husband and a wife to be fulfilled and find enjoyment and pleasure in one another, guess what Satan's goal is? For the exact opposite for that to happen. 
If God said, what I have joined together, let no one separate, guess what, guess what Satan's going to do? He's going to do everything that he can to tear marriages apart because he knows exactly what it represents. And he wants to destroy this picture of the unity that we have in Christ. And here's a big one. A lot of ways our marriage is a testimony of God's grace to the watching world. And if Satan can destroy that, I can guarantee you that he will do anything he can to make that happen. Here's some interesting, an interesting statistic. Now, this statistic kind of blew me away at first, right? Who's heard that the divorce rate is 50, 60, 70 percent? I've heard that. It's a myth. That's the good news. And in fact, a, a recent study by Barna Research Institute, they did a pretty broad study, and they said amongst non-Christians, the divorce rate is 23% in our country. I mean, still not great, but I mean, it's way better than 50 or 60, right? Here's the sad news. Amongst professing Christians, and they made sure they put in there that divorce happened between people that were already professing believers, between 27 and 30% is the divorce rate amongst Christians. Significantly higher than non-Christians. Do you think that's by accident? We need to understand that Satan hates marriage and he will do everything in his power to destroy a marriage. And if he can specifically target a Christian marriage that's going to produce godly offspring, that's going to be a testimony to the watching world of God's grace, would he focus on that or two people that are unbelievers that are just living a life of sin anyways? Think about it practically. Of course he's going to focus on the Christian. It makes sense from a spiritual perception why divorce amongst Christians is higher because they're a bigger target when it comes to Satan. For instance, do you think it's just mere happenstance that there are so many temptations in this world that ensnare people to sin that affect marriages so bad? Do you think that's just coincidence? Or do you think Satan, who is called the God of this age, who Ephesians chapter 2 says has control over the systems of this world, do you think it's just an accident that there is so much temptation that causes so many problems in marriage? No. Do you think it's by accident that so many Christians experience financial troubles that end up causing immense stress in marriage, which is one of the number one reasons for divorce? Do you think it's pure coincidence that when a couple is having trouble, inevitably some man or some woman is there to lend the listening ear and fill the void in the exact time the husband or the wife is struggling so deeply? No. It's not an accident. Satan has designed everything to make marriage extremely hard. Think about it in our, own, in, our own, in our own country, just some of these crazy statistics. Like, it is cheaper at tax time to be unmarried to, to somebody than it is to be married. There are actually penalties for being married than not married. Isn't that crazy? Is it by any accident that, our, that in our culture, submission is considered to be an extreme weakness? Or that individualism is so highly promoted in our culture? Is it an accident? No. 
Selfishness, self-focus are two of the biggest promoters of divorce that there are. Satan is good at his schemes and he will put every snare and every roadblock in our way that he can. But he ain't the only problem. Guess who the other problem is? Us. We make it far too easy for Satan far too often. You know, husband and wife, when they come together in marriage, it's kind of like mixing oil and water. (laughs) You know, know, two components that that don't naturally mix together. Um, When a husband and wife get married and move in together, they find out very quickly how different they truly are. Who knows what I'm talking about? If you're married, you know what I'm talking about. I guarantee it. (laughs) This husband read an article to his wife about uh, how women use 30,000 words a day and men only use about 15,000. The wife replied, yeah, that's because we have to repeat everything twice to you. To which the husband said, what? Marriage is hard. And the only thing that's going to keep us together are two things, love for God and true love for one another. That is the key to a successful marriage. But ask yourself this, what two factors are common in pretty much every divorce? Either the love for God has waned or the love for one another has waned. For marriage to work, a right relationship with God is absolutely vital. Why? Because he's our only defense against Satan's attacks. If there are so many attacks against marriage, it just makes sense that having a close, vibrant relationship relationship with Jesus is absolutely the most important thing in the world. Consider James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 tells us, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. We, We need the Lord. If you want your marriage to work, you need to have a close relationship with Jesus because Satan is always attacking, and your only defense is the Lord God and his word. Think about all the schemes that Satan puts in front of us, all the snares that he puts in our way. What about Psalm 119 and what verse 105? It says, His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God's word exposes the snares of Satan, which is why it's so important for us to be in it. If we're not right with God, we are prime targets for Satan to attack. The other factor is true love for one another. What is love? How, how is it defined? Well, the Bible defines it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. Verses 4 through 7 says that true love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no records of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but always rejoices when truth wins out. And I love verse 7. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. When things go wrong in a marriage, what's, what's the factors? I guarantee you one of those things not being present are the factor. When somebody is not patient or somebody is not kind or there's jealousy or boastfulness or arrogance or one of them being rude or one demanding their own way and not being willing to compromise or being irritable or how about this one, keeping records of wrong, always throwing it back in somebody's face, things that they had messed up on in the past. Or they just give up and say, this is too hard, I don't want to do this anymore. 
Friends, those, those are the factors of divorce. But imagine a marriage, for instance, where the goal of the husband and wife is to always put one another first. Where their goal is to make sure that their spouse's needs are met before their own needs are met. When their spouse is having a bad day, they respond with understanding because they've had a bad day too. Their primary objective in life is not accomplishing their own goals, but instead to help their spouse accomplish theirs. They don't worry so much about themselves reaching their full potential as much as they want to help their spouse reach theirs. Imagine a marriage where a husband and wife make a point daily to recognize the positive things about one another instead of criticizing them for the little things that irritate them. And imagine a marriage where a husband and wife focus their time on making the other one feel loved and appreciated and desired and cared for instead of focusing on themselves. Imagine a marriage like that. What type of marriage do you think that would be? Although maybe not one that was perfect or without its challenges, there would be a marriage where both the husband and wife would receive incredible fulfillment and would experience marriage the way God intended it to be. Friends, that's the key to a vibrant marriage. It's not hard in concept. Walk with Jesus and put your spouse first. Worry about making them successful. Worry about fulfilling their needs. Worry about making them happy. Worry about making them feel loved the way they need to feel loved. Does that make sense? So often, you know what the problem is in marriage? And I've learned this over 20-some years, is my biggest struggle in my marriage came because of this. Because I, it's not that I didn't love my wife, but I showed my wife my love the way I wanted to be loved. But it ain't the way that she felt loved. And she would love me the way she wanted to be loved. Does, does that make sense? Like the way she would express her love to me is, was what she really wanted for herself. And the way that I expressed my love to her is what I really wanted for myself. You know what the amazing thing is? When the hamster wheel started spinning and I started to see this, and instead of showing my wife love the way I wanted to be, think about it here, buddy. Let's show her, let's love her the way she needs to be loved. You know what happened? Marriage became blissful. It ain't perfect. Do we have issues? Absolutely. But you know something? When, we, when a husband and a wife focus on what the other one needs, and but here's what, here, well, they don't deserve it. What do you do to you? I mean, right? Which one of us deserves it? It ain't about that. None of us deserve it. But we should do it anyways. If we want to experience God's best. This is the type of marriage that shines the light of Christ to the world around us, which is one of the incredible blessings of marriage, that we get to be partners in expanding God's kingdom. That's an amazing blessing. So when it comes to this, merit, this issue of marriage and divorce, I can tell you with absolute certainty that God's desire and perfect will is for a man and a woman to experience fulfillment, gratification, and an incredible sense of love within the bond of marriage. You are a gift to your spouse, and they are a gift to you from God. We need to see them that way and treasure them as the greatest treasure God's given us. I can also say with absolute certainty that it is God's will for a marriage to last until death do us part. 
Because what God has joined together, let no man separate. God's perfect will is for that man and woman to stay together forever. I can tell you that in the course of a marriage, it is God's absolute will that even when a husband or a wife has been wronged, it is is his will for forgiveness to be extended and grace to be shown. But I thought Jesus gave us an out. Did he really? Did Jesus really say that if my wife has an affair that it's my duty to divorce her? No. Because in the context of Scripture, the context of Scripture says the exact opposite. Instead, I need to do what Christ has done to me. What did Christ do to us while we were yet sinners? He died for us, went to the cross, suffered immensely so that we could be his. When we're running away, does he just let us go? Does he write us a certificate of divorce and boot us to the curb? What's he do? He goes and he chases after us and brings us back to himself. Friends, that's the picture of marriage that we have. And that, that for two Christians, this should be how we view marriage. Until death do us part, no matter what. Because that's what Christ has done for us. We mess up so many times, so unfaithful so many times, and that Jesus never, ever forsakes us. See, this is why I'm convinced that Jesus in our text here was not giving an out for a marriage to end in divorce. He was simply answering a direct question from some men who had completely had a completely warped view of what God designed marriage to be in the first place. Does that make sense? Jesus wasn't giving an out. He was speaking to men that had a completely warped view of marriage. And he was trying to help them understand that. Like these men that Jesus was referring to did not see their wives as something to be treasured. They simply saw their wives as a resource to make them happy. They did not see their wives as someone to be served and appreciated and cared for. They saw their wives as servants to fulfill their needs. What they certainly didn't see was the picture of marriage as God sees it. What they certainly didn't see was that um, their marriage was a picture of God's relationship with them. And because if, because if they had, divorce would have been the last thing on their mind. Right? If they'd have seen marriage from God's perspective, that we have a God, a God in heaven that wants to be married to us, they wouldn't want to be divorced from him. Would they want God to kick them to the curb every time they messed up? Absolutely not. This is what Jesus was dealing with. What they had completely missed when thinking of what Moses had written so many years before this was that divorce was only made possible because their hearts were hard and far away from God. When, when Moses gave people the permission to do this, not the command, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 8, listen to what verse 7 and 8 says. These Pharisees came, these teachers of the law came to Jesus and said, Then why did Moses and the law say that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? And Jesus' response was this, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. So what is God's view on marriage and divorce? If I am absolutely certain of anything, I am certain that God wants a marriage to last a lifetime. No matter what. 
I can honestly believe in my heart that, that, that a Christian should do everything in their power to make a marriage work, no matter how bad a spouse messes up. As long as they repent, they're repentant and will come back, we should extend grace and receive them back because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14 says this, Since God chose you to be holy people that he loves, we must clothe ourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, making allowances for each other's faults, and forgiving anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. We should forgive others as God and Christ have forgiven us. Because that's the example that has been set for us. And especially when it comes to two Christians that are married, can I tell you something? You're the bride of Christ before you're the husband or the wife to the one you're married to. This relationship trumps the earthly one. And our duty as a Christian is to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. To do exactly what Jesus did, which is why I'm absolutely convinced that God wants a marriage to last forever. And I really believe that's the heart of the teaching that Jesus was giving in these two verses. And so instead of being like the people in our verses today, let's try to, um, instead of trying to figure out an acceptable way to get rid of a spouse, let's instead be the blessing to our spouse that we were called to be and be the gift to them that God designed us to be. And if we do, I assure you, we'll experience God's best in this most amazing relationship that we've been given, which is marriage. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day and for just your word, Lord, of this time together. And Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, there, there is no doubt that marriage is hard. It's, it's a difficult relationship. And yet, God, it is certainly the, the one relationship in my life that has brought me the greatest pleasure and joys. And I am so thankful for my wife. Heavenly Father, help, help us to be the men and women that you've called us to be. God, for those in here that are married, God, let's take your word seriously. For the husband, God, our, our call is to, is to love our wives, to love our wives, in fact, as, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Father, we should, we should be living lives of sacrificial love no matter what. And, and the same is reciprocated from our wives, that, that, that our wives should love their husbands and respect them and, and, and care for them and, and support them and, and, and help them be the men that God's called them to be. And Father, as we do these things, I just pray that you would bind Satan in our marriages, Father, that you would help us to, to have the pleasure and, and the enjoyment that you designed them to be so that, God, we can be a witness to the watching world of your grace. Father God, we're just, I'm just thankful for who you are and just thankful for, um, for all you've done. And I just ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.